You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Stargazing Edition. The turmoil has engulfed the Galactic Republic. The taxation of trade routes to outlying star systems is in dispute, Jake. Oh, no. It's in dispute. Man, talk about setting the table for some serious drama. Yeah, can you feel the trade blood stirring you as a, as a young boy or yeah, a man? Yeah, like, like, whoa. The taxation man, of trade routes. To, I can't wait to get into this trade disputes. This yeah. movie, yeah, I mean, I know. There's there's not a lot that we're going to be able to say in criticism. We might be able to say some new things that people have never said in praise of this movie, maybe. And not a lot to, cri- to criticize it that the internet won't have already thoroughly picked the meat off of the bones of any criticism oh, yeah. you could make of this movie. But, yes turmoil has engulfed the galactic republic the taxation of trade routes to outlying star systems is in dispute i should say that is the opening crawl for star wars episode one which we are discussing today on sanity the movies my name is nathan alberson the phantom menace yes sir is darth maul Mm. sidious i guess just the sith in general just the return of the sith in general right actually yeah Return of the Sith. Well, I guess Return of the Sith would have been a dumb title because nobody knew who the Sith were when this came out. That's right. Yeah, it was like, you know, this big reveal of like, he's trained in the ways of the Jedi and the Force and has a lightsaber, but it's red. Could he be a Sith Lord? The Sith have been extinct for thousands of years. Yep. There's no way. That's probably better dialogue than the dialogue that was in the movie. Uh, my name is Nathan Opperson, your humble and obedient host. That's Jacob Menzel, Pastor Jake, the pastor who's a master hey. of discussing Star Wars. Just the two of us today to discuss episode one. And what I thought we'd do today, Jake, because uh, look, you can go on YouTube, you can find videos. People have been picking on this movie now for what well, came out in 2000, 99. Was it 99? Somewhere right in there. Yeah, 1999, before the turn of the millennia. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. People have been picking on this movie now for over 20, 20 years. years. Although my memory, interestingly, is of people liking this movie. I don't remember walking out of the theater and hating it myself. I don't remember my friends hating it. I don't remember kids at school talking about how stupid it was. I mean, people didn't like Jar Jar Binks. People, but the conventional wisdom that this movie just came out and everyone said it ruined my childhood, and we were immediately done with Star Wars, and Star Wars was ruined, and George Lucas had ruined everything. That, I think, is kind of a hindsight. Yeah, I don't remember there being too strong a negative vibes. People were really excited about pod racing and Darth Maul and stuff like that. Yeah, I just remember... Jedi fights and stuff. I remember people being excited about exactly that. The pod race, Duel of the Fates. I mean, those were the two things, and they were awesome. And they were awesome enough that I don't remember. And people, obviously, immediately, people hated Jar Jar Binks. I don't think anybody was claiming that Jake Lloyd was a great actor, that Natalie Portman was a great actor, but I do not remember this giant wellspring of hatred. I don't remember people calling for George Lucas's head. I don't remember. Uh, The whole idea of George Lucas ruining our childhoods, I really think, I don't actually even remember it coming into vogue for episode two. I remember most people were kind of disappointed with episode two, but you still had Yoda at the end busting up with his little lightsaber. Mm-hmm. to look forward to, which everyone thought was cool. And so I remember sitting through that movie two or three times just to get to that part. I remember people laughing even in the theater on opening night at the bad dialogue and stuff like that, the sand speech and everything huh. like that. But I don't feel like these movies were as hated then as a certain segment of the population. I guess I should qualify that. I wasn't super tuned into Star Wars at right. the time. I don't remember which of these films I would have seen in theaters, but I definitely, if I did see them, I think I saw Phantom Menace in theaters. Right. I don't know that I saw the other two in theaters because I didn't, didn't care. care. 
and I wasn't that impressed. Right. I did think the lightsaber battle was cool. Right. But I would have seen it during the day or something like that, cheap, on the cheap. I was in high school. It wouldn't have been something I would have wanted to go on on a date night or anything like that. Like maybe a buddy and I might have gone and seen a cheap matinee that maybe it. Even then, I don't even think my friends cared. Yeah. Me and my friends were almost as cool as your friends, only we stood in line on opening day and skipped part of school and had plastic lightsabers with us. <laughs> um, ah. <laughs> no, I don't, I'm not opening day, on the day that the tickets came out, actually. Remember, this was before cell phones, or certainly before the prevalence of cell phones, before the iPhone. And so my friend didn't have a cell phone, and I found out, I think it was in the newspaper, actually, like in our local Bloomington newspaper, it said, Star Wars tickets will be on sale today at such and such a time. I called my friend before school to see if he wanted to go after school, and it was like seven o'clock in the morning or something like that. And I got on the phone and called him, and his mom answered, and it was clear that she hadn't woken up yet, and just said, hello. And I may or may not have... Hung up, hung the, up the phone. Hung up the phone on her, and then, but then, I, but then I was like, "Oh, I we really need Star Wars tickets." So I called back, hoping that I would get someone else. And instead, you got the mom got the again. got the mom again. Played dumb. Asked if my friend was there. Said Star Wars tickets. Then we went to school, and then I don't know that for a fact that this is true, but there may or may not have been Jedi robes, Jake. Whoa. There were definitely lightsabers. I think we went to Target, bought some lightsabers so that we could have them while we were buying our tickets. Wow, that's amazing. We were excited about this movie. And this movie's not good, but I think I was excited enough about it that I was willing to accept that it was good. It was one of those kinds of things where it's like, well, it must be good. You ever had like that phenomenon where you some, it happens to me with people sometimes. Everybody says that a person's great and I meet the person and I just assume they're great. And then I realize I don't like this person yeah. actually, but everybody told me they were great. So they must be great. But you have that cognitive dissonance. dissonance yeah well it's, it's always it's like it's dissonant and then suddenly it switches something a switch flips in your brain and you're like oh wait a second i, I actually understand this now i, don't I actually like understand this, this. i have a feeling about this that i did not yeah have before you know i don't actually like sausage pizza but i've been told my whole life that i like sausage pizza no i i don't you know for maybe a year or two after episode one i thought it was pretty cool and i was excited about episode two but i think by the time episode two came out it was like boy i hope they Get away from the silly stuff that they did in episode Jar Jar one. Jar Binks and trade disputes. Yeah, no more Jar Jar Binks. Oh, good. The kid's grown up, so now it'll be a teenage actor, and then that'll be better, and yeah, this is going to be the good one. And then- It was the worst one. It was the worst one. And then the third one came out, and everybody said, it's really dark. This is going to be the good one. And then I suppose of the three, it was. It is. It's still, I mean, I think most people probably rightly rank it above Return of the Jedi. Yeah. So I have watched all of these prequels relatively recently. Actually, what I did is I went on a Star Wars kick and I just watched the scenes that I liked in the prequels. So I was skipping around and that's the way to do it. If you can just make one prequel movie and kind of make your own just by skipping through them, that's the way to do it because there is a lot of junk. Yeah. Qui-Gon goes to the 1950s diner and meets the guy with four arms to get some useless information. There's all just yeah. a ton of scenes like that in the prequels. Mm. But if you can condense it, it's not so bad. Are we prequel apologists, Jake? Prequ we, pre we are. Prequologists? We are. Why? Because of a couple of things, I think. One, we are capable of doing something a lot of people are not, which is simply remembering the fact that they're kids' movies. Mm-hmm. 
and that kids really like these movies and these sorts of things. Right. So that's one thing. A lot of people are not capable of realizing or or accepting that these are just kids' movies. Well, because they remember the originals being so exciting when they were kids and being so big and scary and interesting. And it's like, yeah, that's because you were a dumb kid. Like when you're yeah, an adult, go back and watch them again. You don't actually without feel without the nostalgia. If you can separate yourself from the nostalgia, they're actually not that great. Right. Except that the all of the stuff of the movies is right. super cool. All of the stuff, the lore, the mythos, the music, the lightsabers, all of the stuff. It's a super cool, fun sandbox. Right. It, but it's more fun growing up without the prequels. It's more fun to go and get a lightsaber and imagine yourself as Luke Skywalker than it is to actually sit and watch Luke Skywalker. Right, exactly. Just to take the stuff and play in your in, in in George Lucas's sandbox. The prequels, like they ramp a lot of what's really cool about the original trilogy up to eleven. Mm-hmm. The worlds are cool. The lightsaber fights are a thousand times cooler. They bring in fun things like pod racing and stuff like that that made for fun video games. And for a kid, this is just a really cool, fun, colorful, exciting world. Especially if you're a kid to, you know, have a little Anakin, five, six-year-old Anakin Skywalker mm-hmm. who's in a hard spot in a hard life be actually somebody who's secretly awesome and can do cool things and save the day. Like, that's a fun story for a kid. It really is. You watched this with your kids, didn't you? I did watch it with my kids, and my kids loved it. All of them. They weren't like, Jar Jar's not funny. No, they laughed at Jar Jar. They thought Jar Jar was hilarious. They thought Anakin saying dumb things about... Let's try turning. That's a good trick. Yeah. Like, that's a a line that my kids thought was hilarious. They just thought it was cool. They thought it was fun. Top to bottom. I fell asleep while I was watching it. Mm Mm-hmm. But you know what? My kids had a fun time watching that movie and I felt just fine about them watching that movie and didn't feel bad about falling asleep during the pod race of all points. Like the good part, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, keep my eyes open. What do you want? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's that's really it. I mean, George Lucas came up with cool new things. A double-ended lightsaber, a bow. A light bow? Right. You know, wh- whatever we call it. Darth Maul is a fun, colorful-looking character. Well, so much of the criticism I see is from a adult perspective where people will say things like, what's the use of a double lightsaber? You'd actually just end up stabbing yourself. It actually makes a lot more. And it's like, because it's cool. That's it. It's that's, cool. That's the only reason. That's the only plot thing that we're solving with a double lightsaber. It's neat. Yeah. It allows him to fight two Jedi at once in a very carefully choreographed scene. Right. And if you're the cool kid on the playground, your parents buy you that toy. And if you're yeah. the dumb kid, then you just have, well, if you're a dumb kid, you just have a stick or something. But if you're the you slightly stick, less dumb kid. Or you kid, have like a knockoff, like. Dollar store. Dollar store laser sword. Laser sword. Yeah. <laughs> and then if you're a little bit cooler, you just have a blue or green lightsaber. But then the fun thing is whatever jerk kid's m- mom pampered them with the red double lightsaber, you beat the crap. That guy becomes the bad guy and everybody goes after him and everything. You know, it's it's, it's a good time is had by all. So that's not one reason. We remember that these are kids' movies. What's the other reason? In the world. Oh, yeah, the world. In the... the, So that's the second reason. There's a third reason that I have come to appreciate more. And I I think um, in some ways, John Favreau helped me really appreciate this 
about these movies, which is that George Lucas at the end of the day is an innovator. Right. And what he loves to do is to take his IP that's worth millions of dollars. Billions, I'm sure. At the time? Yeah, maybe millions at the time, yeah. It may be billions at the time, I don't know. Millions, billions, I mean, Disney bought it for a billion, didn't they? That's what I thought, so I would have... One billion. In 99, millions. millions. In any case, a lot of money. Yeah, lots of money. And then throw all of the cachet, all of the capital into developing cool new fun technology for storytelling that that pushes what we can do at the movies and what we see at the movies forward for everybody else. You know, it's easy to look back on um the you know the droids or a lot of the digital stuff that we see in these films or even the fact that it was digital and we went digital instead of with puppets. Right. And see it as actually cheapening the look of things. But it was so cool. Right. It was neat that he could do that. And he pushed everything forward. It made The Lord of the Rings possible. It made Avatar possible. All of those movies that have pushed the the ball down the field even further. Down to, to where we have digital de-aging that is convincing. Where you have The Lion King, photorealistic. All of that is because... George Lucas took this opportunity to push the ball down the field with CGI in live action. Right. You know, you may think, well, couldn't you have done that with, with not this property I care so much about? Or could you at least have done a better job of telling the story? The answers are no and yes. Yeah. No. If you don't have the resources, if you if you can't already bring in an audience, nobody is going to gamble on those kind of innovations. That's right. And you can say, well, they've gambled on the first Star Wars, which was a relatively low budget movie compared to its predecessor, or its, uh, what's the word for the things? Followers. For, compared to the things that came after, to, to its followers. Yeah. And it broke a lot of new ground. I think part of what Lucas understood or thought attributed a lot of his success to of the original trilogy was less the story and more the innovation, right? Like, the graphic, the the you know the way that they pulled together the the puppets and the the lasers and everything like that and the spaceships and all that sort of thing. Right. Like he he knew nobody had ever made the effort to make things seem so realistic until Star Wars. Right. In a space, Flash Gordon doesn't come close. Right. Like, what do you want? What are the other movies like? Nothing that really comes close what he put into the original trilogy. And so he just did that again with the prequel tr- trilogies. But he knew that the next front was CGI. And mm-hmm. so that's where he put it. Yeah, and it's, I mean, if you like Gollum, if you like any, if you, if Jar Jar Binks was the first CGI, fully CGI character. I mean, he is absolutely groundbreaking. And there's lots and lots and lots of things that have come after that we all agree that we all love. I mean, Gollum's the big one that comes to, but any mocap, any kind of... CGI yeah, I feel character like anything, anything that what's his face has done Andy since Circus. Andy Circus has done since Gollum. Right. If you like anything in the Marvel movies, the other guy who plays Rocket and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like Rocket, Groot, any of those characters, I mean my goodness. They're bringing all that new ground and there's stuff like in this movie, Yoda's walking. Wow, like that was cool at the time. I, I think people don't actually remember like, wow, Yoda's actually hobbling around on his cane. He got out of his chair. Like, he's not even pulling out his lightsaber in this one. But And, and now you watch it and we you're like, oh, only it's see a... Yoda from the waist up or laying down flat. Right. Because he's a puppet. 
Or he'll be like perched on Luke's shoulder and then right. he'll go, whoa, and fall off and it'll be obvious they just t- tossed the puppet or something. You know, you always have to forgive those things. And there's a certain nerd that grew up with Amblin Entertainment stuff that loves that stuff and that's okay. But I actually, I really like CGI. I know this is absolute blasphemy among people that grew up with 80s entertainment, but millennials basically, I guess, is the word for them. It's annoying as that I think word that's is. It. I think that's the word, yeah. Yeah, that is actually the word in this case. You know, CGI gave us dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. It gave us Marvel movies, which I like. It gave us Lord of the Rings movies. There's a good ways in u- of using it. There's bad ways of using it. There's in-between ways of using it. It can be abused. There's ways to use it cleverly. There's mm-hmm. ways to use it not cleverly. But it's a great tool. It's a great yeah. filmmaking tool. And it's a lot of fun to see what people do. I mean, I, I guess the argument against it is it's just fun to know that they're doing magic tricks in the old movies, you know, for a real movie nerd, it's fun to think like, what's the sleight of hand that we're using? Like the, the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark when all the Nazis are melted, kind of fun to think, well, that's an optical and that's a puppet and that's a thing that they blew up and that's a guy that they, a wax figurine that they melted and sped up the footage. Whereas now you'd just be like, well, that's CGI and that's CGI. And of course it's all CGI. It's all CGI. Yeah, watching this movie, I was just... It really made me mourn the the new Star Wars movies because immediately the movie opens and it's like they're flying new kinds of spaceships. Yeah. There's these Viceroy guys who are these colorful characters, very racist. Yeah. (laughs) Let's just say Japanese stereotype or Chinese, whatever they are. We'll just call them Asian stereotypes. Yeah, Asian stereotype, which... I think there's no question that George Lucas enjoyed. I don't think George Lucas is a racist, but I think he enjoys old racist stereotypes from 1930s movies. So he's like, society doesn't really have a place for a graspy Jewish moneylender character, but I can make a little blue alien that talks exactly the same and does all it <laughs> fulfills the exact same function and get away with it. <laughs> Not really much question in my mind that that's exactly what he's doing. And you've got these new characters and then they're on a new planet. And we're just like within the first five, 10 minutes, we're seeing destroyers. We're seeing battle droids. It's like new, 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 interesting, all interesting kinds of new stuff. And wowing you in 1999, really wowing you. Well, and even watching it again, it's like, you can see the seams. Naboo looks a little bit more digital than I remember. Jar Jar yeah. certainly more CGI than I remembered. But it's pretty well done. Even I mean, it basically holds up if you're willing to be a little forgiving. It it mm-hmm. it basically works. It's new stuff. Like you compare that to these new movies where it's like everything's always going to happen on a desert planet. I know we've said this before, but it was just really striking to me again. Like colorful yeah, no, new worlds. It's new worlds, and this very first world that we're going to visit is going to have a secret hidden world, right within the world. And that secret world is going to have a secret world hidden beneath that world that you're going to have to pass through on your way there. And there's always a bigger fish. Yep. And so you're getting Venetian canal type stuff. And then you're getting this underwater city. People in some ways, and I'm, I count myself among them, but we are so jaded these days. Can't you just watch a movie like this and appreciate it on the sheer level of underwater cities are neat and alien planets are cool? I think that's the level that George Lucas actually intends a lot of this stuff. And then people think, well, like, why isn't the dialogue better? Why are these characters so annoying? Yeah. Why are the Gungans retarded? Right. And General, uh, what's his name? Captain Tarples is not retarded. Jaja, you and Big Doodoo. I like that guy. (laughs) 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 I didn't know his name. Now, if anybody knows me and has listened to the booking and has listened to other Sanity at the Movies, I feel like I'm playing the opposite role because wouldn't I usually be saying... 
But you, but it's also a terrible movie. Why can't they just hire real writers and make a good movie with real dialogue that tells a good story, idiots? Let's not dismiss this as good for a kids movie or good for a Star Wars movie, or at least it was innovative. No, let's hold it to the standard of being an actual good movie. And in fact, aren't there good kids movies that adults can get a lot out of and enjoy and find cathartic and and, and interesting that are also fun and actiony and cool? Yes. That and is so those questions is yes. And and that is the role that you normally play. And I think that that's true. It's too bad that George Lucas didn't hire a screenwriter. And I have no idea why he didn't. It's just clear watching this movie after all these years. He had no interest in these characters and writing dialogue. The filming is really flat. The shot composition is usually just over the shoulder. And then we cut to the other person. There's very little imagination in the way that these scenes are staged. They're edited slowly. A lot of times we'll linger after somebody says something. It's just, it's bad. Like it's, I'm not going to argue that it's good. I guess the reason I don't feel the same ire I don't know. For one thing, I'm an iconoclast and everybody hates this movie. So I feel like in order to be a true iconoclast, I have to like it. Yep. Jake suspects that that's 98% of the reason. Um, Yes. But (laughs) I don't know. You know, it's Star Wars. I like Star Wars. I've told this story before. I'm going to tell it again because it's the story of how I am now a Star Wars fan. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's as simple as I always thought that the action scenes from those prequels were super cool. And I would pay for a really good story to be told with that kind of action and that kind of mythos and and that music and that kind of like, and, you know, Nathan one day turned on a stupid uh, cartoon at my house Mm -hmm. that my kids started watching and we got into the Clone Wars series and as much as I talk this up, I'm not recommending that you sit down and watch it all with your kids because it's got, I mean, depending on their ages, it's got some pretty dark stuff in it. But man, they told a good story and I loved that show. What actually happened was I was in the room, me and Jake and Jake's kids, I don't think Jake's wife, were in a room and we were about to watch something. We were like scrolling through Netflix and then Jake gets a phone call. So I'm down here with all these kids and they start clamoring for, I want to say, uh, What's that Seth Brogan R-rated animated movie? Like the hot dog. The hot dog thing. The dog thing. Yeah. The sausage party. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they don't know any better, but for some reason it comes up in the kids' feed because that's how wonderful Netflix is. And so they see this. And so I'm just like, oh boy, I should just turn on something. And then I decided to sarcastically turn on Star Wars because I knew it would basically be harmless and Jake wouldn't mind and I could I could make the choice without having to consult him and the kids would like it. Yeah. And I turned it on. And then I left, I think, basically. <laughs> yeah. But the next thing I know, you guys are all into the Clone Wars. Yeah. Yeah, you turned it on. and but I, even, even after I turned it on, I was like, well, this is actually kind of cool. It's, you know, lasers and lightsabers and Jedi powers and a cool story. It took a while for me to... At first, it was just something that I felt fine turning on in front of the kids. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to be there for it um just to be sure it was gonna be cool and then after a little while it really started to come together and they started telling some really great stories and one really great story which is anakin's fall to the dark side and the corruption of the jedi council and how they were ultimately responsible for anakin and they were wrong right 
And it was just a really artfully told story that takes place between episodes two and three that makes a whole lot of emotional sense of Anakin's fall to the dark side and makes him actually an awesome Jedi. The awesome Jedi that you wished you had, that Luke could have believed in. Right. That Obi-Wan could have been truthful about when he said he was the best starfighter in the galaxy and the greatest warrior I had ever seen and a good friend. Right. Or whatever, however Obi-Wan put it in episode four. He's all of those things. He is the Jedi. He is the best of the best in the Clone Wars. He's awesome. He has a tragic weakness, but that weakness is his strength like it is for everybody else. We watch him get betrayed and we watch the Jedi Council screw a whole bunch of things up with him. We watch Obi-Wan screw it up. We watch Yoda screw it up. And it makes a whole lot of emotional sense of Anakin's descent to the dark side instead of it just feeling like he's an impetuous idiot who is badly acted by and badly directed by somebody who doesn't really care right. about their story making any kind of emotional sense or Anakin actually being anything but a whiny brat. Right. That was a neat ride to be on. Yeah, you can tell all kinds of great stories, but when you get a chance to tell a great story in such a cool world, like the world of the prequels, man. Well, I think the world is the key for me because people are going to accuse me of having a double standard, and maybe I do, but I feel like what I always look for, I, I, I always judge movies according to the expectations that I think an average, that I think me, I guess, uh, well, let me not pretend to speak for anyone but myself, what my expectations are, that makes a big difference, believe it or not. I was pretty quickly able to realize that Star Wars was not the place to go for scintillating dialogue. But what I always look for in a genre film is elbow grease anywhere. And, mm-hmm. and usually that w- when you hear me complain, it's like, well, why didn't they put some elbow grease into the script? Why didn't they have some real dialogue, some real character beats for these characters to play? But and, and George Lucas definitely did not do that. But he did put a lot of elbow grease into the action scenes, into the world building, just into the mythology. I mean, I really like the idea of this decaying republic yeah. squabbling and fighting the little people being sort of... We're, we're, what we're actually watching is... What we discover we're watching is the fall of the Roman Empire. Which is awesome. And that's really cool. Right. Like, you had no idea that 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 the world that, that the world that episodes four, five, and six, that what you're dealing with in that world is the fallout of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And now we get to go back and see it just past its peak. Right. Just past its prime, just at the edge of collapse, but still having all of the beauty, all of the remnant, all of the awesomeness of being the great galactic republic. Yeah, and the art and the statues and the things that they walk by and the grandeur of Coruscant. That stuff really speaks to me. I love that story. I like reading stories of the fall of the Roman Empire, you know, like... You know, we have this image in our minds of... Grandeur, pillars, Yeah, the grandeur statues, of the Roman Empire and all these things. That they, or, you know, ancient Egypt and the mm-hmm. pyramids or whatever. But it's a civilization that is just past its peak, just past its prime. It's on its way out. And we know it's on its way out, but they don't. Right. Think of all the mythos and the lore, surround, like Obi-Wan, you know, speaking wistfully about it is a lightsaber. Yes. You know? And then for a thousand years, they were the guardians of peace and order. In the... It's a different time. And a, Which, by the way, I'm the 99. A more civilized time or something. You know. Billionth person to point this out on the internet. But 
in the old movies, he says 99, he says a thousand generations. And then the new movies, they say a thousand years. So yeah. George Lucas is that lazy of a writer. He couldn't even be bothered to cross check. And I don't know why he didn't just have intern. His, he could have just told his intern to write the movie. Turns out that this like lost civilization and all of its grandeur that is so far in the past that Han Solo and Luke Skywalker can't remember it, have no clue of it, basically all ended 18 years ago. Right. But that's a really fun- 15 to 20 years ago. Story. It's really- I don't know. It's moving somehow. It's I, I love stories like that, just in general. Stories about Pompeii, stories about yeah, absolutely. the apocalypse. Well, it's like Atlantis. What's so Atlanta. Yeah, uh, exactly. charming about Atlantis? Well, they had all this, you know, it became the stuff of legend and myth, this lost city that was so advanced and had this advanced form of government and peace and, you know, sort of Arthurian Camelot. Right, you know, Camelot's like exactly it. Technological advancement, all this sort of thing. And so you take the mythos, the stuff of Star Wars, and where in the original trilogy, you've got exactly one person at any given time who knows how to wield a lightsaber, right. or two people, if you count Vader and, as we now know, Lord Sidious himself. Right. Um, so like three people who are alive who know how to wield a lightsaber. What was it like when the Jedi were the guardians of the galaxy and you know the, they had lightsabers everywhere and they were all over the place and it was this big thing and and I think it's pretty genius for the answer to be it was awesome. it had, it was awesome but it had also fallen into complete decay and decline and we're we're seeing the very end the civilization is already dying even before yeah. Anakin. Instead of taking us to the point of height they give us the end of it so you still see a lot of the grandeur of it right but it is clearly in its twilight well for, from it allows our perspective. Us, it's, it's smart for one thing because it allows our imaginations to still be fired by what, what was it what, like in its prime even before this yeah what, what was it really like what who built this and how did it come to be and mm -hmm. what were all the cool adventures that people went on yeah this is the end of that thousand generations slash years right and now the Jedi are in decline. The what you might call it, the Senate is just a bunch of squabbling bureaucrats. And George Lucas and he, the Sith are on their way and back, the, and they're a thing that you've never heard of, but you're about to see it on screen. Right, and you get the idea that they're almost mythological at this point. Like yeah. they've been hiding in the shadow for for generations now, which is really cool. It gives them some potency. Yeah, but but George Lucas he does such a bad job of telling the story that he wants to tell, the main story. But he does such a wonderful job at just a really neat trick that most people don't pull off, which is he gives you the impression there's all kinds of amazing stories happening on the periphery. Like, yeah. if I knew the story of Senator What's-His-Face or Chancellor, Chancellor Valor, whoever, you know, like, that's probably pretty interesting stuff. Like, everything that's happening on the sidelines is yeah, interesting. Yeah, he sets up all of these chess pieces on the board, sort of like what Rowling does. But what Rowling does is she sets up all the chess pieces on the board, and then she makes them feel like any one of them could matter to the story that we're playing with. Right. What Lucas does is, here are a bunch of really cool chess pieces that mean nothing. Right. Actually. But what that does is it sets up a whole bunch of... Po it, it, on the one hand, it fires your imagination. On the other hand, it sets up this whole world of stories to be told mm -hmm. with all of these characters. What's fun for me watching the prequels now, and this is even more evident in Attack of the Clones, but what's fun for me watching them now is I've I've watched a bunch of these stories be told. Right. And now I'm coming back. These sort of like almost invisible chess pieces now have all this meaning. That's fun. 
Yeah, you know who like, forehead I, guy is and who like the what were the what's the race of ladies that we mostly just see as dancers Twi'leks. and stuff. Twi'leks, she yeah, Twi'leks Jedi, are. Jedi. And, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, I mean, like the dude in. I mean, I could tell you their name. The the dude that has like the face mask or whatever. Mm-hmm. His name's Plo Koon, and there you he, go. He's kind of awesome, and yeah, they're all awesome in their different ways. Kit Fisto is in there, and he's the dude with the like, looks like a squid head with the right. green and whatever. I don't think he shows up till Attack of the Clones, but well, there's them, and then existing on the periphery of this civilization is the Huts right. and Tatooine, and absolutely, these and gangsters I know, and all this. There's a whole other world. Yeah, and what you realize in this, this one is like the Huts are. It's not just Jabba the Hut; it's the Huts plural, the Hut clan, and. I, I know the names of other huts. Zorba? Is there a Zorba? There's zero. Zero. Zero the hut. There's yeah. a movie called Zorba the Greek, and I think I <laughs> I always <laughs> try to turn it into Zorba the hut. Yeah, the banking clan, you know, the history of Geonosis. You compare I'm that to- into Attack of the Clones again, but- Right, well, who doesn't want to spend as much time thinking about Attack of the Clones I mean, as it's possible? like basically the best Star Wars movie. I mean, You were about movie. to say movie, yeah, basically movie. the best movie. It's a movie, movie yeah. of all time, yeah. Move, o- move over Citizen Kane. <laughs> That's right. Attack, Attack of the Attack Clones. Attack of the Clones. He needs, he needs Citizen Kane. Well, my, the reference point I was thinking about today was the Thor movies. Like, you never get, you know, I said it feels like a million interesting movies are happening on the periphery of Star Wars. None you, of you that. You think about like Asgard, th- like, it doesn't hardly feel like a real place. And it certainly doesn't feel like anything interesting happens there or anyone interesting. You don't get a sense of yeah. who the Asgardians are really until maybe after the Asgard is destroyed. Like you begin well, to yeah, get a sense yeah. of the what, civilization. What happens is Taika Waititi says, we spent two movies not caring about Asgard at all. So let's blow it up and let's care about other characters from other places. And then we'll have a, a refugee family. Right. And we'll make that fun. I know we'll take a rock monster from that first movie or right. whatever that was, and we'll make him a sympathetic, cool, fun character. But but honestly, Jeff Goldblum's trash gladi- gladiatorial planet way feels more way color, more developed and more interesting in, and real yeah. than Asgard. And I don't even know how to explain exactly what the difference is. I guess you just get it's to, those. It's detail. It's just details. Yeah, exactly. It's detail. It's somebody put some thought and elbow. What what they did with Asgard before was. This is colorful, so the bridge is a rainbow. This is has beautiful vistas, so we'll have some... Be- and it's sort of medieval, but not. Well, and here's the most important people disclaiming to each other with a background that's painted in. Right. Whereas George Lucas always has, and other creators always have keen, a, a finger on just being able to give those little details that tell. You think about the cheesy insert from the special edition uh, when when they go into Moss Eisley and you suddenly see all this stuff. Yeah. You see like little robots fighting and a guy, you know, a big monster thing. George yeah. Lucas just takes the time for that kind of stuff. Yeah, and he thinks that stuff's super cool and fun. I'll tell you what, a movie that actually does you know, a good job. You go job. into the cantina and you, you yeah, know, we're going to spend like a couple minutes establishing this band and these dancers and the, these slimy people and there's a werewolf at the bar i wonder what's the deal with him and it just yeah it allows your imagination to play and even just watching the movie as a kid or as an adult just like what's up with those people and they all have recognizably human motivations you know there's yeah. a little creature that just wants a drink that's <laughs> too know, little too yeah. little and there's the guy that's kind of sulking and looks looks a little creepy and i think i think that's as much as anything the genius of george lucas is he can take any creature or any i always think of in Return of the Jedi, when the big monster gets crushed underneath the oh, gate. Oh, yeah, and then that's perfect. And then his keeper. He, yeah, he thinks to include the scene when where the 
the guy who's responsible for that dude comes out and cries. Is, is, is in tears, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's a good little joke, but it also just adds such richness to the world. Like, of course, there'd be a trainer and a, a guy that spent time raising this thing from a tadpole and, and he's crushed. <laughs> his <laughs> monster is crushed. His heart. Yeah. And, and th- those are the kinds of things that George Lucas may not be good with dialogue, but he is really clever at telling a lot of stories visually visually you have you have you know the pod race you have the the little robot that gets sucked into the engine and then comes out and then what does he do he cheers he puts his arms up you (laughs) know it's just it's little things like that that are just yeah it's a lot like you know he's not that different when you think about it from brad bird Mm -hmm. somebody like that who you almost think george lucas would be better off writing and directing silent films yeah it'd be a really fun experiment to just strip the dialogue out of this movie throw the five title cards that you need and yeah there's some politics and stuff that you have to get through but actually a lot of the stuff is is really simple you know especially in the big sequences like the pod race you know the dialogue is extraneous at best what would be even more fun is to go back and just redub all the dialogue yeah which you could do yeah. I mean, that is the criticism that your your characterization of me is not wrong, that I, I want to say, you know, George, just pay somebody that knows how to write dialogue. You know, he actually knew to pay some good actors, and there's little moments like just tiny things where you can feel Liam Neeson trying to add a little something. Like he has, in his death scene, his dialogue is something like, the boy must be trained. Oh, Promise me, Obi-Wan, that you'll train him. It's so bad. But what he does do is he puts his finger up and he runs it along Obi-Wan's face before he dies, which is more character development than their entire relationship (laughs) got (laughs) Yeah, for the the whole movie. So it's just like, George, if you could have just had somebody that was interested, and I find it fascinating that he didn't, because he did that with Empire and Jedi, and they're both better movies for it. And I don't know if he just wanted the credit. I don't know if it was hubris. I don't know if he, he didn't know that he needed to. I don't know what he was thinking because it seems obvious that he's just not that interested in that stuff mm-hmm. and that's okay he doesn't need to be he can get other people who are interested in that stuff you know you could get any fan fiction internet my geek. goodness there's so many people yeah there are so many people that would love a chance to be a part excuse me of one of these stories and who at that time would have just been happy to be like dream everything up yeah, yes, sir. Yes, sir. yes, sir. Dream it all up. I'll just make it, I'll realize your vision as best as I can. Well, your pal Dave Filoni, who did Clone Wars, that's exactly my understanding is that- That's how they got started. George Lucas said, this is the kind of story we want to tell. These are the worlds. This is even kind of some of the plot. Yeah, Lucas had a whole lot of authority over that. So like he kept creating problems that Filoni would have to write his way out of. Right. Like Darth Maul is actually still alive. Right. And he's going to come back. Lucas could- Early in that series, Lucas had the authority to just say stuff like that. Right. <laughs> and Filoni was like, okay. Okay. Now I have to tell us convincing story where Dar- Darth Maul actually survived all of this. And it's going to have to be a compelling story that fits into all these other stories that we're telling. Guess I got to figure that out. And then he did. You know, that's why Filoni, I think, is so great, is because that is how he started. He just started working with a whole bunch of George Lucas created problems that were really interesting and fun and cool right in a world with all these characters that and in worlds that george lucas created and was interested in and and when i'm trying to work on something like when we're working at writing an episode of the villa or something i concentrate and I, i i want us to concentrate as much on thinking of what the right 
question is as thinking of what the right answer is. Because if you can't start by saying, okay, what is the problem here? Like, like once you have the problem, you can always come up with a solution. But if you don't know what if the problem is, you don't put your are, finger on the problem. Yeah. A lot of our process, I think a lot of our best scenes, especially over the last season, have come about because I've had a problem with something that I have been unwilling to articulate right. or try to articulate. And Nathan has forced it to the surface. Right. And then once the question was articulated, then we came up. We were able to work out better a better solution, better yeah, answers. I mean, usually, so, it's not that hard to be like, okay, well, you do this. Here's how you fix that. Actually, once you and I'm, my concern is always like, man, if I let myself realize what what I don't like about this, then I'm going to blow this. Once all we pull the thread, we're going to pull it unravel. All apart. Yeah, it's all going to unravel. And you know, there's places to just say this isn't the it's best. It's got to be good be, enough. Yeah, it's got to be good enough, and I yeah. don't want to pull on this thread too much because it'll. But yeah, but you have a pretty good intuition for when it's time to pull on those threads. So well, it's and we like you said, we've gotten some of our best stuff. And I think I say all that merely in this case to say I think George Lucas knows how to create a world, and he knows how. I I think actually people like to make fun of him for things like like I've read internet pieces that are snarky, like oh he wanted to bring Darth Maul back. Hey, that's a fun idea. It's a super fun idea. And then I I. I Really like and everybody was Filoni criticizing for just... him for killing him in the first place, right. and then he was like, after you know, years after everybody had had their say of how stupid it was to to kill him, he was like, yeah, he is never actually dead. Right, he's been out, the you know, he's been crazy somewhere, and he's going to come back, and he has this whole other story arc that is connected to Obi Wan's story and Obi Wan's final. Uh, development into the Jedi that he needed to be to face down Darth Vader at the end. Right. Like, <laughs> that's a crazy idea. <laughs> that's a crazy idea. <laughs> but you come up with a crazy idea like that and then you give it to talented people that can make it happen. And yeah. I think that's what George Lucas has actually been a master of his whole career. And the problem is he's an when, ideas guy. He's a, he's a fantasy world ideas sort of guy. Like, well, I haven't, I, I'm trying to remember where. I think I heard this on another podcast or something. I don't remember where. But my, my and I've not watched it myself, but on YouTube, apparently, you can find video of a pitch meeting between Lucas and Spielberg and Kasdan doing Raiders of the Lost Ark. And they're they're coming up with ideas. And the thing that I, I've heard about it is that Kasdan's like coming up with some good ideas and Spielberg is coming up with some dumb ideas that we'll never see the light of day that we, you know, that we only know about because of this video. But Lucas is just conceptualizing, boom, 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 archaeologist. I don't know what the specific, oh, he should find an arc. Like, Lucas is just spinning gold. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's who Lucas is. You know, he's he's what we would he's call. He's just super tapped into his little boy right. imagination. Which is great. The problem is that. Little boys can't make good movies. That's right. The You know, there's there's a kind of person, and you like in your church, you can see this. There's a kind. There, there are two kinds of people that are good with kids. Mm-hmm. One is a is a actual good father, right? And the other is a little boy who never grew up, never matured, and so he's good with he or she. They're good with kids, but it's a, actually a function of their arrested development. It's the person at the potluck who doesn't talk to the other adults, but because just they're goes too and insecure, but they go and the play time. with the kids. They're not being a creeper. They're just. That's what it's sometimes they are. Sometimes they are, but, but sometimes they're not. In sometimes this case, they're just saying, like, yeah, in this scenario. case, best case scenario, yeah. they're, they're not, but they just have some real maturity problems. Right. That's actually, I don't know, George Lucas, but that actually That's is what kind he of feels how, like. how he feels like. He's the he kind feels of guy like who, the kind of person who has some arrested development stuff going on 
that has given him a superpower right. in terms of hanging on to that really vivid childhood boyhood imagination problem is he can't tell good mature stories with that well it actually feels like he doesn't under much like a kid he doesn't understand how romance works we'll talk a lot more oh, about man. that yeah in no a, a, attack of the clones he doesn't understand how adults behave he doesn't understand the difference between wise advice and stupid advice yeah like just all these beats that a regular writer would have to hit like making the jedi actually sound like they know what they're talking about or making a plausible romantic uh, yeah scene. and this is the thing that exact thing is what i really admire about Dave Filoni because he managed to work with George Lucas while accepting the reality by not trying to pretend like the Jedi in these movies are super wise, but actually they're corrupt and mm -hmm. foolish and they're making a whole lot of mistakes that lead down a whole lot of different bad paths and which is him leaning into some things that may have just been functions of Lucas failing to write, Absolutely. attempting to write wisdom, doing a bad job. And so Filoni is just like, well, this actually sounds stupid, so I'm just going to play it like it's stupid. Yeah. Which is a nice way of covering George Lucas's nakedness, actually. Yeah, and I think that's what he, he's really great at doing that a whole bunch of different turns. And George Lucas comes away loving him and thinking that he's great. Mm -hmm. So he, he doesn't feel undercut by it somehow. Right. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, one of these days we're going to have to talk about Clone Wars, I guess. Actually, we talk about Clone Wars pretty much every Star Wars episode. Yep. Uh, one Thanks way or another. to me. Thanks to Jake. Rebels is good too. Yeah. What's your one sentence review of Resistance or whatever that thing's called? Undeveloped. Undeveloped. It's, they, so that whole first season is a really slow burn mm. and it's cut short. So that we're going to have a season two, but that's because they pulled Filoni out of animation to work on The Mandalorian. And so we're going to get a season two and then it's done. That's it. That's it. That's all. So hopefully they'll take it somewhere cool. Hopefully they'll take it somewhere really cool, really quick and wrap it all up. Right. But they, uh, when they wanted to launch Disney Plus, first they pulled Filoni back into finishing Clone Wars, which they knew would sell Disney Plus because so many people love it. Um, and it got pulled before he could finish it. And then... As the Mandalorian developed, they pulled him into the Mandalorian, and you can see, you can read and get a whole, a whole lot of hints about that, about how he wasn't really involved in it at first, and now it's basically him and Favreau together. And even like if you watch or read a little bit about interviews with directors of various episodes, mm -hmm. what you read about is how much they call in Filoni to. Troubleshoot. Mm -hmm. To troubleshoot, to solve problems, to help them understand the lore, the background, what's going on, mm -hmm. how it all fits together, how it all works. That's just too bad they didn't want to promote this guy in time for the new trilogy, the, they, yeah, you know, the Abrams trilogy. He was trilogy. too much of a risk to their stupid corporate minds, but he was the guy to have. It's so dumb, too, because... It's exactly the kind of calculated risk that's really actually pretty smart because you've got a property that's going to sell tickets yep. and put butts in seats no matter what. Yep. So you don't have to have a name director, actually. You don't have to have name stars. You don't have to have name anything. The name is Star Wars, and that's, right. what's, that's that sells everything. And if everything. you want to take J.J. Abrams and put his name at the top of it, Sure. Sure, fine. He's another good conceptions guy, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, like, okay, it makes... A whole lot of sense when you're moving somebody from animation to live action to have pair them with somebody who's good at directing live action because right. it's a different set of problems. Right. It's you know different working with people 
like that. I'm sure there are all kinds of differences, which is why The Mandalorian as a Disney Plus show with Jon Favreau is, to my mind, it's perfect. Right. You take Favreau, who's a good people person, who's a good director in that sense, who's really just there to geek out like Lucas was there to geek out. And then you take some a great story guy like Filoni. Yeah. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, what else do we want to say about this movie? You know, the other thing I thought about episode one in this whole prequel trilogy is, man, Han Solo, you are missed. You yeah, realize no how kidding. much that character and that performance and that actor do for Star Wars. It has this whole, whole world, dimension yeah. of humor and excitement and fun and self-referential irony. And it's just everything that's missing from these movies when you have these solemn, portentous Jedi characters and a little kid who's cute. And, and your comic relief depends solely on, you know, some Three Stooges acts. Right, which which has always been part of Star Wars. I don't actually think Jar Jar is a betrayal. I mean, not not if you accept that we had teddy bears and C-3PO. Star, George Lucas has always had a, a slapsticky, puerile kind of sense of humor. Not not vulgar, but just, you know, silly. Um, the stormtrooper hits his head on the... yeah. Yeah, exactly. on the door as he tries to walk through. Han Solo is working. Is it a documentary about that, by the way? About the stormtrooper who hit his head. Yeah, it's it. They're just trying to find that, find guy, that guy and figure out who it was and figure out was this a direction or did you screw this up and it made it its way into the film either because it slipped past people's notice or because it tickled somebody's funny bone. Right. Like the whole documentary about that. It's called. Uh, the Empire Strikes Door. The Empire Strikes Door. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Available wherever the best documentaries <laughs> and most important documentaries just, are sold. Yeah, I saw the trailer for it today. It was <laughs> that's hilarious. My <laughs> well, I just think if you think of if you if you imagine taking Han Solo out of those first three movies, you'd have a lot of what you have here, which is solemn, serious, not self-referential, not you know. I mean, Qui Gon yeah. and George Lucas. I think. In his head, he he tried to make Qui Gon be a bit of a, a swashbuckler, or not Qui Gon. Um, Obi Wan, young Obi Wan yeah. is kind of supposed to, you know, well the negotiations were short. He's got that, but it's just <laughs> not. It's, it's, sense of humor. It's too little thing. Kind you of know, humor, yeah. I actually think it would have been fun. I I actually really like that idea. Make Obi Wan be the impetuous, uh, yeah. young, young, excitable sarcastic dude that's not taking things seriously and getting them into trouble and maybe have him thoroughly learn his lesson by the end of the movie. I mean, there's all kinds of directions you could go with that. Oh, but... man, so much of that movie makes so little sense. <laughs> no, the boy will not be trained. Oh, but now that Qui-Gon's gone, sure, Obi-Wan, you can train him. That's called a first draft, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the kind of thing you put in your script, and oh, I'll solve this later. <laughs> but the important, the key words are, I'll solve this later. <laughs> Not just, oh, I'm done. We'll solve. We'll solve. <laughs> yeah. Needs solving. Yeah. I mean, we, we write oh, yeah, stuff like that stuff all like the time. Like, oh, yeah. Oh. We, we need some connective tissue here. Wow. This doesn't, this made sense in our heads, but you put it on paper and you realize they would never suddenly make that decision. I guess we need to think about it. And a lot of times that's where you get your best stuff. Like, okay, yeah. we need them to make a wild reversal. Why? What's motivating it? And then you have to think of something and what you think of. Well, can honestly, be really that's a lot of what, where our, the kind of thing we were talking about earlier. Yeah, suddenly happens. this it's character like, is doing something that we need them to do for a plot reason. And one of us just isn't buying it. Like, why would this character do this? This is this does not make sense. It doesn't make sense. This is not what she would do right here. Right. It's not. It's not. It doesn't matter that that's what we need her to do. It's not what she would do. So we either need to give her a reason to do it 
that is legit, that makes emotional sense. Or come up with a, another way of the same thing happening, accomplishing yeah, the same plot Accomplishing the same result. Without the character doing something that they wouldn't do. Yeah. And that's where you get uh, a lot of your best stuff. Yeah. And... Well, that's where, honestly, our whole third season's coming from. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And I, I look forward to sharing that with people. But it, it just feels like, I don't know, maybe, maybe the real lesson here is you need to have collaborators and you need to have people that will tell you no. You don't want to get to be so yep. powerful that, because that, that is the one thing we can say is, where was the person that just said, hey, George, like, you can't do this. You need to, we need to get a writer on this or, or you need yep. to rewrite this or something. Like, this isn't, this isn't done. Sure, it'll make lots of money and kids will buy the toys and everything, but, but this just, it's not, it's not done. Like any half-witted producer, Hollywood, cigar-chomping Hollywood producer that I always like to talk about, this legendary uh, icon, well, would, would just say, go back and, and you can and write understand, it again. If you think about it that way, you can understand why Disney has erred so much in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. The problem with the prequels is that Lucas, what's great about the original trilogy is Lucas had a great team. Mm -hmm. What the problem with the prequels is Lucas had no accountability. We're going to pull together the story team and it's going to be collaborative and they're going to be checks and the studio is not going to allow the prequels to happen again. And strangely, like where George Lucas was willing to just have loose ends and stuff, we're going to tie everything up so tightly that the movies will basically be self-contained yeah. and they really shoot themselves in the foot with The Last Jedi just like closing down, like, like almost maniacally letting Ryan Johnson just be like, that interesting th story thread, dead, 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 dead. Anything, yep. you, it's... I'm creating problems to be solved to make this third episode awesome. Right. <laughs> Except for that's the bad version where you're like, I'm going to cut off every interesting avenue that they could do. Yeah. Well, what else is there to say about this movie? Let's see. John Williams is sure a rock star. Man, or the fates. classical music star. He just... Although I do remember buying the soundtrack to this movie. <laughs> Before the movie came out, and one of the tracks was called, like, track number 13 was Qui-Gon's Funeral. I was Oops. like, okay, well, thanks. <laughs> I guess it's... Spoiler. <laughs> Spoiler. But, man, he did, he put some of his best work into those prequels, I he think. Did. Duel he of the did. Fates and Across then Across the, the Stars. Yeah. And I think Revenge of the Sith is, in terms of being a complete soundtrack, mm -hmm. probably right up there, too. Yeah, it's... it's With Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, it's it's epic. It's awesome. But and it does a lot. Man, what storyteller wouldn't want access to John Williams still in his creative prime mm -hmm. and the world that Lucas created there? And he man, he just he botched it. Yeah. Well, that's that's what, and I suppose we'll spend a lot of these prequels just speculating without what any, could have what, been, what could have been, or why what happened happened without ever, and we won't ever really know. Because yeah. they they hold their PR pretty tightly at the Disney Corporation, certainly, and uh, Lucas was as is, is is good at PR too. I but think of all the talent they had in those movies, in terms even in terms of casting, and I am not, I will not throw any of those actors or actresses under the bus. I mean, I don't care what you think about Jake Lloyd. I don't care what you think about Hayden Christensen. I don't think what you care about young. Natalie Portman. Well, my argument, I'm sure I've said this on mic before, but Samuel L. Jackson, we all know he's a great actor. He sucks. He's so wooden in these movies. Exactly. Liam Neeson, pretty great actor. Right. Um, who else we got in there? We've got 
Saruman's in there. What's his name? Christopher, Christopher Lee. Lee. Yeah, everybody knows he's great. But you know, you, you you're handed those lines, and you have somebody who doesn't know how to direct actors, and anybody can end up looking bad. There's only three people that transcend it, and the one that I'm most impressed with, uh, one of them, one of them, small and CGI and green, and Frank Oz. He's just he's always great, you know, and, yeah. and you can't mess up Yoda. And then one of them is Ian McDermott as Palpatine, who's just yeah, he's amazing, delicious, and he's even he's great in this. I think he I does, think he does awesome. the right amount of winking, but he also doesn't really wink, and it's just it's a really well modulated performance. Yeah, top to bottom. I don't know if I said this on mic or not. Mm-hmm. In the Phantom Menace, he's like you know that's actually what it cuddly. is. He made the choice. He actually made a great choice not to wink. He just seems. He seems like a great guy who, when he says- a sweet grandpa. A surprise to be sure. I've been nominated. He doesn't- He feels legit. He doesn't do, for a guy that's so good at over the top, melodramatic, mustache twirling villainy, you, you begin to admire how good he is at chewing the scenery later on when you realize how good he is at actually not chewing the scenery. Early on. But, yeah. Well, you know, he's got a job to do and his job is as simple as Padme is- like the moral center of this story mm-hmm. and you have to win her trust right and you have to win the trust of all these legendary jedi and you have to be beyond suspicion and they have to all trust you and see you as this as their biggest and best ally mm-hmm. so he plays that so straight he does it so well that it becomes a little bit silly to imagine that when he needs to talk to the Viceroy of the Trade Federation, he puts on a cloak and talks like this. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you imagine him kind of getting amped up in his closet somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but he's great. And then I think the person that is given the dumbest material and transcends it the most that That's you can admire. McGregor. Ian McGregor, absolutely. Yeah. Like, he has nothing to work with. He's given these wooden lines. He's given nothing Terrible to play. stuff. And he... He actually... He does a great Alec Guinness impression, first of all. And then yeah. second of all, he... It makes you forget that he's Scottish or whatever he is. Right. He's Scottish? Yeah, he's Scottish. Yeah, yeah. And he's... And so you hear him talk like... I mean, I know you've seen him in other movies. Mm-hmm. seen him in Moulin Rouge. Right. But, you know, you expect that his Star Wars accent is his actual accent. Right. It's not. Well, and he just... I mean, if if there's any justice in the world, I, I really hope karma gives him a great, and I don't trust Kathleen Kennedy, but I'm hoping for that, fingers crossed, that yeah, a little karma comes his way and he gets a great Kenobi, Kenobi series. series where yeah. he really gets to, some real material to play and a real story to tell. That'd be super fun to That'd watch. That'd be really gratifying because he does a great job with nothing, just yeah. nothing, less well, than nothing. So did Alec Guinness. Yeah, so did Alec Guinness, but- Alec Guinness at least got to hit the beats of a good mentor. Yeah. Uh, Obi-Wan. Obi- this is the great story of what young Obi-Wan Kenobi. Oh, he was the guy that stayed back on the ship while <laughs> the other characters went and did interesting things. <laughs> Come on, George Lucas. <laughs> it's, it's so weird. Like, <laughs> He's the guy that looks very much in Attack of the Clones, like the poser mentor who has absolutely nothing to say. Right. Except hope oh, I hate it when he does that, and and then they, he's got that painful scene in the elevator. Like you yes. remember the time where I fell into a sarlacc pit, ha ha ha! And they have to try and give some warmth to their relationship that Lucas yeah. hasn't bothered writing at all. I it, saved you from that, you know. Yeah, that would have been nine times that you. It's so bad, and he yeah. does such a great job of transcending the worst material. Yeah, what I what I think anybody that wants to be critical of the 
the actors of these movies needs to do is to take a script mm-hmm. from the film and try to act it out and make it convincing and make it work, knowing that you've got this tone-deaf director right. who's insisting, like, I don't know what George Lucas was saying to 20-year-old, 19-year-old Hayden Christensen in Attack of the Clones. No. But I have to imagine he was saying over and over again, now you have to remember... Anakin's one fatal flaw is that he has no emotional self-control. He's ruled by his emotions. He's 100% as emotional as possible all the time. And then he's doing things like, well, Anakin, you're not powerful. Well, I certainly should be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and it's like, who can blame him? I can even think, you know, I bet we might have- This to is all this. Obi-Wan. He has to have these little tantri- tantrums where he's like, this is all Obi-Wan's fault. Nobody listens to me. They just don't understand. Well, and I'm wondering, even with a good director, who if you couldn't find a way to throw that line away, eh, this is Obi-Wan's fault. The only way to maybe make some of those lines work, like, you know, you've been in love, you've dated, you know that you say dumb things and come up with dumb metaphors and you act goofy and you know you're being goofy as you do yes. it. That'd be the way to sell the famous sand speech. Like, even there, it would be hard, yeah, but, but that's, that'd play, be your you one could, shot You could play it. it sort of goofy and over the top. I'm the glad you're not sand, you know. Yeah. I mean, we've all said You're things, not sand, baby. Ooh, we've yeah. all said things like that to Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the fact is, you've got, a, you've got two 20-year-old people who, they need to be in the hands of a good director. like. How much life has Hayden Christensen lit? How much romance, real romance, does Hayden Christensen know? Probably not a lot if he's been a young guy that's been plugged into being a movie actor. Like, he's probably worked towards that. He's probably had almost zero life experience. Now, what may be the case is that both of them have had plenty of sexual experiences because they're young, attractive Hollywood people but that's not at all the same that's thing. not the same thing as as real romance it's not the same thing as having a real love story no, to an- draw antithetical on. to a real that's love exactly story. right it is antithetical to it and so even then like you know he's telling you to play it hot and heavy and emotional and it turns into this like really angsty you know immature teenage idea of what romance is well that's and, it's interesting that you say that though because the fa- they fail even there a lot of actors are sexually mature before they're emotionally mature. Scarlett Johansson is someone I think of who had access to her sexuality pretty early in life and knew how to use it. And it's sad. You can talk about how Hollywood is just an abusive system. And I think there's some truth to that, a lot of truth, actually. But a lot of times these young actors, you know, you think about DiCaprio and Winslet in Titanic, they can access raw sexuality where they can't yep. access anything else. Star Wars actors can't even do that. Like George Lucas isn't even good at co- coaxing sex out of them. Yeah, like that's that's, right. that's how bad he is. And presumably yeah. that it was just makes, it makes to be mined. Such little sense. Everything makes such little every kiss makes such little sense. Right. Like it's just so bad. Right. It's really not much more to say about it than that. Yeah, I just uh, George Lucas was so powerful. I just wish I mean, it, I know that there are there are teenagers who get into dumb relationships that make no sense. Right. And everybody's in annoyed ways. by watching them say dumb things to each other in and dumb ways. Be really stupid. But a movie about those kinds of characters should have the self awareness to know that it's to know about, it's about those kinds of characters and not about the two most awesome people in the galaxy. Right. Who totally deserve to be together and it's too bad that everything's conspiring against them. Yeah, I mean he's trying to tell Romeo and Juliet. 
Shakespeare, he is not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> around Said the survivors Yoda. of this <laughs> around, around storytelling the massacre, <laughs> a perimeter, a perimeter create. create. <laughs> um, we straight into Attack of the Clones territory. I guess that's a little tease for what we're going to say when we get to that. Is there anything else to say about, I don't know, the thing that I feel about all these prequels is that it's just too bad. And this happens sometimes. Uh, another one that I think of is uh, Scorsese's Gangs of New York, where he's obviously really interested in Bill the Butcher, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, and then DiCaprio, for whatever reason, is the lead of the movie as this young guy that Scorsese's obviously not interested in at all. Like He doesn't want to tell that story. He's telling the story that he thinks people want to hear instead of the one that he actually wants to tell. And it's just clear, Lucas... That don't work. He's interested in the... Senate. He's interested in the decline of the Roman Empire. He's interested in history. He's interested well, in the Jedi. Here, let me let me let me spin this as best as I possibly can. Right. Lucas never bothered to write his Silmarillion, and so he was trying to figure it out as he was making his Lord of the Rings. Right. And so he was interested in all the backstory minutia. He was interested in the politics. He was interested in the trade wars and the Federation and these other things. This is one way that you could spin it. I'm not saying this is 100% the way that... Like I said, we're going to spend endless time speculating about what Lucas intended because that's interesting to speculate. Who knows, ultimately? We're not friends with George Lucas. I mean, if you think of it this way, what's so powerful about Tolkien? Why is Tolkien... Last, why is he so? Why can people still nerd out over Tolkien? He actually created the languages, right? And they're actual languages that work. Created all these myths and all these, all this lore and all these backstories that he hints at and he references. When he does it in passing, it carries the weight with it of it meaning something and not just being something that he popped off because it would sound good that he was going to come back and color in later. He'd already colored it all in, right? And that gives a certain kind of quality. It's like, um, we talk about this in our pastor's college with, with sermon writing. Mm-hmm. You know, you study and study and study and study. And the art of the sermon is deciding what not to say. It's a really simplistic way of, of thinking about it. And we say a lot more than this. Oh, but sure, so much of it is deciding what not to say. Saying, yeah, a fraction, a tiny percentage of what you've learned about this passage is actually what gets communicated. But because you've done your homework, the weight of all that you've learned brings a gravity and a strength to everything that you do end up saying because it's what you think the people need to hear at that point in time. Well, and it's right? weird like, that what people can almost tell- and it brings like, a confidence right. in a in a- you know, it's just, it doesn't feel like BS. It's and so feeling, much of Lucas feels like BS. Well, and it's, you could, you could, to use the sermon analogy, you could give two guys the same sermon outline that made the same points. One of them's done his homework. The other one hasn't. They preach the same sermon. I couldn't necessarily tell you off the top of my head what the tells are, but, but the guy that's done his homework, you can we respect it. and we feel the gravity of who he is and what he brings to it. It's simply there informing. Even if he doesn't allude to too much stuff, even if yeah. the illusions, of course, will be there, the sermon will be better. You wouldn't actually, they wouldn't actually both end up with the same outline. But I think even if they did, you still feel the you gravity. You still feel the difference. And the weight. It. And it comes across just in gra- you know, gravitas and strength and confidence. There are certain questions of a passage that you may decide not to answer right. in your sermon because you're focusing on something else. Your job's not to answer every single question. Right. 
Your job is to decide what the people need to hear and how to apply the passage to the people this Sunday. But if you've already answered those questions for yourself, even how you read the passage, it will sound different. It will feel different. But if you just are like going to be lazy, mm-hmm. not fully understand the passage, not understand, not have answered some of these questions for yourself, it's going to feel like you're cheating. It's right. going to feel like you're skipping over it, not because you made a decision about what is needful for the people to hear, but because you just didn't quite know what to say about that. Right. And all those little things come through. Yeah. And this is the same same kind of thing in terms of storytelling. Like, and we knew we knew this and we applied this early on to part of why we have these stories with the Vill. Mm-hmm. Sorry guys, if you're listening to this because you like Star Wars and have no idea that we have this other podcast called The Vill where we tell stories. They originated as parody characters mm-hmm. that we were using for sketches. But we never just created a parody character because we had a thing to parody. When we created a parody character, we gave them a whole backstory. We begin to think about who they were. By and large, we're just telling the story of what we had already written about their backstories. Mm-hmm. When we created Ricky, we knew that that she was a an object of Pastor Stu, who was right. you know, this nobody character that had no personality in the Popcorn Coalition, but then he started to take a personality too because we had this new detail about him, that he was a predator. And then we ended up accidentally telling this predator story. Right. And now we've got this show. That's the kind of thing that you have to do if you're gonna tell, and not trying to pretend like we have, (laughs) that we're the greatest at this, we're figuring it out. Right. But that's the kind of thing that you have to do if you're gonna tell really great and compelling stories. And it feels like a lot of places that what Lucas is doing, instead of focusing on telling a good story, this is this is my apology for it. Mm-hmm. One way to pitch this is that instead of telling a good story, he's focusing on figuring out the lore, the backstory. How does the Senate work? How do the politics work? How do these other things work? Like things that he hadn't worked out before, because that's what he's interested in. And he's not the pastor that didn't do his homework. He's the pastor who did his homework and then ran out of time to actually write the the darn sermon. That's right. It's like he was under a, you know, he's on a time crunch then. And then, you know, the fact is he had 20 or 30 years to do his homework before that time, but he never did. Right. (laughs) And so he ran out, but he was doing his homework. If Lucas had already written this lore out, written these political processes out, Mm -hmm. figured it all out himself, known it, Mm -hmm. been convinced of it, it would lose its luster and he would focus on telling the good story of Anakin. But hey, lightsabers are cool. Lightsabers are cool. Standing at the movies was produced by Nathan Alberson, executive produced by Jake and Nathan. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity. Until next time. There's always a bigger fish. Two of them, actually. 